You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you today. First Peter is where we are. And let me say thanks um, again to, to Jimmy and the guys. Kevin's out. He's in New York City of all places this morning. So thank you guys for, uh, for serving us today and, and leading us. First Peter is, is where we are. First Peter, so you need to get that out. If you need a Bible, there should be one underneath uh, your maybe every three or four seats, something like that. So it would benefit you by having that Bible out and being able to, uh, to refer back to it as we um, read through and preach through this passage. So First Peter, end of chapter 2, is, is where we're going to be. Um, okay, so when you start reading the Bible and you open it in Genesis 1, by the time you get to Genesis 3, an event happens that, that goes beyond um, the limits of language to describe. And, and so what I'm saying in that is when you get to Genesis 3 and you read what happens there, words like catastrophic, words like horrible, horrendous, terrible, whatever word you want to throw out there, it, it goes beyond the limits of that word to describe how bad Genesis 3 is. So, so when, when Adam and Eve, when, when they set aside the commands of God over their life, and, and they decide that in, instead, of, instead of following in the commands of God, they're going to try to set up um, themselves as God of the universe. When they decide that, when they, when they go and they reach for the forbidden fruit, what follows from that point forward um, is absolutely beyond, beyond language to describe. Be, beyond the, the fallout of that it is beyond language. At, the, at that moment, the world broke and suffering was introduced. And so when you start reading forward in, in Genesis, um, you get to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and you see a brother killing his brother. That, that's what follows. You see in Genesis 6 that the world is such a wreck that, that God looks at the world and says, um, I, I'm going to slaughter everyone on it, and I'm going to start again with Noah and his family. Um, you, you start reading forward, and you see jealousy follows. You see sexual perversion follows. You see wars follow. You see hatred follows. You see everything imaginable that is bad that follows, including this, this description of a moment in um, Germany in the 1940s at a concentration camp that Elie Bazell in his book, The Night, describes. Now, now listen, listen to these words. As the train stopped, we saw flames rising from a tall chimney into a black sky. We stared at the flames in the darkness. A wretched stench floated in the air. Abruptly, our cattle car's door flew open. Everybody out. Everyone leave, you know, all, all their belongings inside. Hurry up, said a voice. We jumped out, and in front of us, those flames. In the air, the smell of burning flesh. It must have been around midnight. We had arrived at Auschwitz. The SS officers gave the order, form ranks of five, and we began to walk until we came to a crossroads. Not far from us, flames, huge flames were rising from a ditch. Something was being burned there. A truck drew close and unloaded its hold. Small children, babies, yes, I did see this with my own eyes, children thrown into the flames alive. A little further on, there was another larger pit for adults. I pinched myself. Was I still alive? Was I awake? How was it possible that men, women, and children were being burned and that the world kept silent? No, all this could not be real. A nightmare, perhaps. Soon I would wake up, my heart pounding, and find that I was back in the room of my childhood with my books. Never shall I forget that night. 
the first night in camp that turned my life into one long night seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. And he goes on to express how language, like how, how normal words cannot express the, the sort of thing that, that he saw and witnessed. He said words like hunger, thirst, fear, transport, selection, fire, chimney. These words all have intrinsic meaning, but in those times they meant something entirely different. Writing in my mother tongue, I would pause at every sentence and start over and over again. All the dictionary had to offer seemed meager and pale and lifeless. Was there a way to describe the last journey in sealed cattle cars? the vast voyage toward the unknown, or the discovery of a demented and glacial universe where to be inhumane was human, where where disciplined, educated men in uniform came to kill and innocent children and weary men came to die, or the countless separations on a single fiery night, the tearing apart of entire families, entire communities. How was one to speak of things like these without trembling and without a heart broken for eternity? And then he goes on to describe one specific scene that, man, I, just reading it um, causes my heart just to, to melt. Into, it's horrible. It's, it's a scene of three people falsely accused in this, in this um, death camp. And two were grown men, and one was a young child, and he describes it like this. The three condemned prisoners together stepped into the chairs. In unison, the nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men. But the boy was silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet extinguished. See, when I say that like in Genesis 3, it's impossible to describe with language what what happened there, that's what I mean. That you can't, like the follow-up of Genesis 3 is is this. It's those moments. And and you can't, there's language doesn't, it's impossible to describe it, that sort of suffering, that that sort of, it's impossible to do that. Okay, now starting with with that story, I I feel like it's a little bit risky this morning, and, and here's why. Um, because as Peter introduces us to unjust suffering and, and how we endure it, th- th- that scene, it seems like too extreme. It, it seems like, I mean, I doubt that you have ever experienced or witnessed watching um, a, a young boy um, with a noose around his neck writhing in front of you because he's too light to kill himself. I, I doubt that you've seen that. And so there's an element where it just feels so extreme that it's, it's like couldn't happen. It's just too extreme to even put yourself into. But, but here's why I think we've got to start here is because that same lump that develops in my throat every time I read that, that pit in my stomach, that sort of a, of a grieving that says that cannot happen. That cannot happen. Something's got to be done there. That, that, that thing that rises up in us in the midst of that, that, that thing. Now follow me here. 
that rises up in your suffering. See, it doesn't have to be an extreme case of suffering for you to feel that sort of emotion. When it's, listen to this, when it is your suffering in the size and shape that God has ordained for you, when it's your suffering, that same pit, that, that, same, that same lump in your throat, that same grieving, that, that same demand of God, that this cannot happen in, in your suffering, even when it's not that extreme, even when it's in a different size and shape, that same suffering is there for you. That, that same anguish is there for you. See, this is what, we're not in a competition here of suffering. See, all of our suffering, regardless of what it is, it causes that sort of emotion, that sort of grief, that sort of gravity and heaviness and weightiness to it. And, and here's what I know, because of Genesis 3, when I stand up in front of a room like this and preach on unjust suffering, that if we were to hear the stories in this room of, of unjust suffering that you've experienced in this room, it would totally blow our mind. And we could spend days here. We could talk about physical, verbal, sexual abuse that is in this room. We, we could talk about being unjustly looked over for promotions in this room. We could be talking about cancer and de unexpected deaths and car wrecks. And we could go forever here. I mean, it's all, because of Genesis 3, I know that it's all over the place. So I know that when we talk unjust suffering in this room, that grief and that heaviness and that weightiness, it meets us here. It, it's here in this room. And, and here, here's what I, I, I hope will happen today for you, is that regardless of where you are with unjust suffering, maybe for some of you right now, you're in the midst of it, you're walking in it today. For others, this is going to be prep work for you. But, but regardless of where you are, that you might let Peter come along today and pastor you and just remind you that in unjust suffering, that the gospel makes it there. That, that in your unjust suffering, what happens to you, when, when it comes for you, that the gospel gets there. The gospel has something to say to that. That the gospel can actually redeem that. That the gospel can actually produce in you these fruits of the Spirit and, and the way that you respond to that unjust suffering that is a great gospel display. So the gospel gets there. It can redeem even your unjust suffering. So with that, let's um, go second, or First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Peter says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the, to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. You might underline that word, to the unjust. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering. Underline this word again, unjustly. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it you, and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. P Peter is talking about unjust suffering. And, and I, I think we can all relate to, to just our natural responses to unjust suffering. I just go back to the last time you experienced suffering that, that was not, not the, it, the, the cause of it was not your sin. 
Okay, so, so you just experienced something that came your way by no fault of your own. And think about how you responded in that moment. I think there's two primary ways that naturally people respond to, to natural impulses of the human heart. One way is to fight. We'll just put it under that category. Response number one is to fight. That, that we, um, we, we look at the person or the thing or the people that have caused our suffering, and we look at them and we say, poor you, because I am about to kill you. Okay, this is the fight thing. And I, I don't know if you can relate to that. I, I am all over that. that. That is the impulse that arises in me in the midst of unjust suffering is who is going to pay for this? Because I'm finding somebody and we're taking it out on them. Um, I, I, heard one, I laughed at one pa- uh, pastor. He's commenting on this. He said that, uh, I, I still get this. He said that passivism, I, I just don't really get that. Pass the fistism, I get that. Right? I mean, I'm all over past the fistism. Past the fistism makes perfect sense to me. Right? This is, this is that impulse that says, you hit me, I'm hitting you. You punch, I'm punching back. It's, it's this fight thing. Now, others in the room, you would say that, listen, I'm not the fight type guy. I, I am, here's response number two, just a natural impulse of the heart is flight. It, it, we don't look at people that, that cause the unjust suffering and, and say, I'm going to go find you and physically harm you. Um, instead, of, instead of going after them and saying, poor you, we say, poor me. We, we sink into to, to despair and we sink into to self-pity. And, and all the while we've retreated and, and we're just clubbing the person in our hearts. So, so we're not going and saying, we're going to make you pay. We, we, we sink into self-pity and we try to make them pay in our heart, right? So these are the two natural impulses in the human heart. And Peter is saying, the gospel has something to say about unjust suffering and how you walk in it. The, the gospel invites you, and Peter is about to invite you to a third way, to a difficult way. It's a road less traveled, seldom traveled, seldom seen. It's this way of faith, this way of, of enduring suffering. And so this is the big idea. This is the big principle that, that Peter is going after, this way of faith. That, that, there is, that there is a difference that the gospel makes in the middle of your suffering. It enables a different response because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that you can actually respond differently to unjust suffering. Okay, so this is big idea. His readers then, you now reading it. The, the big idea is when, when you encounter unjust suffering, you are to graciously endure it. You are to graciously endure unjust suffering. Let me say this again. This is how the gospel redeems some suffering in this room, in you, in your situation, that you are to graciously endure unjust suffering. So let's just kind of work through three words in that phrase. First piece of that is unjust. That we're talking about, specifically, Peter's talking in this passage about unjust suffering. Suffering that comes your way by, by no real fault of your own. And listen, sometimes that's a really hard line to draw because most of the time suffering has a little bit of fault of your own in it. But, but essentially unjust suffering is, it, it comes not because of your sin and your stupidity, but because of the sin and stupidity of the people around you. That that is unjust suffering. So I don't know if you've read the story lately of the uh, lady up in the Northeast who was walking with her child out of a Target. And the Target is connected to a, a, a four-story parking garage that has a bridge connecting the garage four stories high to, to the Target. And um, two teenagers, as she's walking out, shove a shopping cart over the top of this um, bridge, four, four stories up, and it lands on her. That, that's unjust suffering. Um, I, I don't know if you read, I think it was yesterday in Hollywood that a, a gunman shoots 12 times just in the middle of an intersection, just shooting whoever passes by. Um, one guy passes by, and he gets shot in the jaw. That's unjust suffering. Met, met a lady a few years ago that she's driving underneath an overpass and a nameless, faceless guy for, for no reason drops um, 
a canister that is full of acid, breaks through her windshield and, and all over her and literally begins to, to melt the flesh off of her body. Now, that's unjust suffering. And, and listen, it's, it's all shapes and sizes in this room. It's not just crazy cases. It is um, people that can't get pregnant. It, it is marriages that have disintegrated. It's an unexpected death. It's cancer. I mean, there's a million of these things that come your way. No, it's not because of a fault or sin or stupidity on your part. It's just living in a broken world and the sin and stupidity of the people around you. It's unjust, he says. And and then he says this, that you are to endure that. That means to withstand it, to stand strong in it, to to hold your ground in it, that you're to endure it. You see it twice in verse 19 and 20. He says you're to endure these things, that, that your job in unjust suffering is endure it. Okay, but then there's this word graciously in front of that. It's, it's not just endure it, it's graciously endure. It's do that graciously. Now, now go back to chapter 2, verse 15, and I want to give you a picture of what it means and, and why that word graciously is in front of the way we should endure. Verse 15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So see, it's, it's, it's actually, like, what it means to say that you endure graciously is to say that you don't just, endure, you don't just stand there and, and, and kind of hold on and withstand it, that you're actually seeking to do good to the people who are trying to do you harm. That's what it means to, to, to endure graciously. When, when you graciously endure, you are enduring humbly, patiently, joyfully, seeking the good of those around you, seeking the good of even the person that is seeking your harm. That's what it means to graciously endure, that you are actively doing good in the midst of your unjust suffering. And listen, I think this is such an important issue for our church specifically, and really just the church in the West in general, to hear, because I think it's a missing note in our suffering. It's a missing note in our unjust suffering. That that retaliation thing, that, that fight or that flight impulse wins typically. And so I think we need to hear that this is a call by God on your life to endure suffering graciously. And it is, it's a note that in the kind of the music of Christianity, it needs to be sounded in our church family. There needs to be great examples. It's in our church family. Hey, listen to why this is so important. Listen to one pastor comment on this. He said it this way. There appears to be an automatic and deeply rooted sense that if I've been mistreated or let down or hurt, then the other person deserves to be shown up and brought to justice and paid back. And listen to this. And therefore, I have the right to make sure that happens. So I can use criticism or slander or put downs or threats or grudges to make sure that they get their deserved reward. And it seems to me that less and less do I hear people say, yes, I have, I have been unjustly hurt. Yes, I have been let down. Yes, I have been mistreated. And yes, they deserve to be shown up and brought to justice and rebuked. But no, I will not be bitter. I will not retaliate. I will not criticize or slander. I will return good for evil, and I will bless those who curse. I think it's a missing note that more of that needs to be said. More of that needs to be experienced. More of that needs to be displayed. So I think for a lot of us in the room, and you just go back to the last time you were, you know, you suffered unjustly. That I think for a lot of us in the room, our impulses win. These impulses of, okay, so, so they have sinned against me. And so now that the laws of God and the commands of God and the way of God and the wishes of God for my life, all of that goes out the window for this moment when I've got the right to do whatever is necessary to retaliate. So I think this is what normally wins in in these moments. 
That, that in that moment, there is a, they deserve this and surely God would allow me to do anything to make sure they, they, they get what they deserve. And Peter is saying, no, that's not true. That when you suffer unjustly, that does not excuse sin for you. It doesn't open up the door for you to act any way you want to retaliate, to, to, to retreat back into self-pity. Poor. It doesn't, it doesn't give you the opportunity to do that. See, Peter is pastoring us here in a really sensitive issue. And he is saying, that, listen, how, how you're to respond in the midst of unjust suffering, you are to graciously endure that. Gra- graciously endure it. Okay, now, now Peter is about to clarify this principle. And he's going to use two illustrations to clarify it. He's going to bring some clarity to this. And, and two illustrations. Here's illustration number one. It's servants and unjust suffering. So, so he uses this, this imagery of servants or slaves and unjust suffering. And you see it in verse 18. Look at what he says in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the crooked. That word, uh, or, or to the unjust. That word unjust there um, is the Greek word skolios. It's where we get our word scoliosis. It's the idea of they're crooked, that they are unjust, they are dishonest. That, that's the picture here. They're cruel people. They're, they're not good guys. They're not gentle people. They're, they're crooked people. And then it goes on to say in verse 19, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, now do you see this? This is a shocking illustration. He, he is essentially using the, the imagery of servants with a cruel master, a servant that's got no rights on their own. They've got no way of recourse. And he is saying that the gospel goes there, that the gospel impacts the way you would respond in the midst of a cruel master being unjust, treating you not well, not good, not justly, but unjustly. That The gospel finds its way even into that. That, that What it means to endure graciously unjust suffering is this, is, is this imagery of this, this servant enduring this unjust master with no right of recourse, and the disposition of this servant's heart being, I want to obey you. I, I am humble before you. It, it, is my, it is my will and my want to be able to submit to you, to, to work well for you. It, it's, it's, my, it's my want and my wish to be able to work for your good. Even when you mistreat me, to, to work for your good. Mindful of God, my, my disposition of my heart is, I want your best even when you're after my worst. Isn't that a shocking illustration? And I think one of the byproducts is, is Peter's trying to pastor us. He is saying that, listen, if the gospel can make its way even into that situation, that situation, unjust master over a person with no rights of their own, cruelly mistreating them, if the gospel can make its way there, then here's the good news for us today. It, it can make its way into your situation into your particular form of unjust suffering. Whatever that is, the gospel finds its way even into your crack and your crevice of, of your unjust suffering. E- even there, that, that, that little point in you, that big point in you of unjust suffering. See, I, I like in the words of, of one um, pastor, he said that, that Peter is attacking the if-only syndrome. The, if only this would happen, then I could obey God. If only this would happen, then I could endure graciously. If only, if only I wasn't passed over for the promotion. If only I got the approval that I deserve. If, if only I, I have this. If only, if only God would do this, then I could obey. And Peter is saying it's not an if-only thing. If this servant can do that, then it applies to you. 
If this servant can do that, then in your moment of unjust suffering, you, by the power of God, can do that. By the grace of the God, you can do that too. So it's this shocking illustration, but then he gives another illustration. It's the second illustration of the Son of God in suffering. Look at verse 21, another illustration here. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter is saying if you want a picture of enduring unjust suffering graciously, if you want a picture of what that looks like, then you need to look at Jesus. You need to sit down and you need to read this. You need to see this. You need to get this in your head. You need to savor this. You need to sit on this. You need to make sure this is vivid in you. That Matthew 27, this is what we covered last week. This is the dark background that's back behind this, this text, that you've got in Matthew 27, you've got Jesus suffering unjustly. This is a perfect, sinless son of God suffering unjustly. He, he is scourged. He is stripped down. He is spit upon. He's sarcastically dressed up as a king and mocked. He, he's beaten and bruised. He's betrayed. He, he's eventually crucified between two thieves on a cross. All of that unjustly. All of it unjustly. But, but watch how he responds. Verse 22. This is what it looks like to graciously endure suffering. 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. See what, what it looks like to endure graciously is, is that we don't sin in our suffering. We don't go the way of fight and we don't go the way of flight. We don't look at those people and say, poor you, because I'm about to kill you. And we don't look at ourselves and say, poor me. We, we, don't, we don't go either of those two ways. It's this way of faith. It, it's, it's being in suffering and, and not sinning in suffering. It's not, it's not allowing suffering to become an excuse for sin in our life. And then he describes what suffering without sin looks like. What it means that Jesus committed no sin. That there's some things that he did not do. See, there, there's a line that in suffering that if you cross that line, if you go that route, then you're sinning. And it says he didn't cross this line. It says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So he didn't return insult for insult, jab for jab, threat for threat. He, he didn't do those things. So there was this line and he did not cross the line. He did not, he did not go there. So, so he didn't do those things, but if we're not going to sin in suffering, there, there's things that we can't do and there's things that we have to do. Okay, but look at the next phrase. So he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but, but here's what he did do. And if you don't want to sin in suffering, this is what you're going to have to do. This is what he says. But he, he continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. He, he entrusted himself to God, a just judge. Now, um, when I read this passage, and specifically Matthew 27, or when I think about a, a, a servant with no rights of his own being mistreated by a master, when I think about that, no way of recourse, when I think about that, the justice streak in me starts to scream. This cannot be. This is not right. When I, when I think about a, a young boy be, uh, essentially being killed by, by hanging him, by, by a Nazi, when I... There's something in me that stands up and says, something has got to be done here. And that justice streak better be in you somewhere too. Okay, so now when it says that he entrusted himself to a God who judges justly, here's what that does not mean. That does not mean that we should not work for justice. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that when you see injustice happening, that you just turn your head and act like it doesn't exist. 
It doesn't mean that you allow yourself to be um, naively exploited for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you would never draw boundaries around your life and dangerous people. It doesn't mean that you would not protect your family or yourself. It doesn't mean those things, right? And so um, maybe just to say this really clearly, it does not mean that you would not take advantage of laws in a land. See, we live in a, in a land that has laws, and we can take our injustice to, um, to, to judges, to juries, to courts, to, to, to get justice there. So, so, right, you should do that. that. That's a good thing. That's a privilege and a grace that God has given us here. So, so, so it's not saying that you should not do that. Um, in Acts 16, Paul um, referred to his rights as a Roman citizen to, to, to help bring about justice. So, so that's a good thing. So it's not, saying, it's not saying don't go through the right and appropriate means to secure justice. Okay, now here's what it does mean, though, on the other side of this. Think the context here. You've got servants with no rights and no way of recourse. You've got Jesus who, who um, is, is under a government that should be, according to, to verse 14 in chapter 2, should be uh, pr- promoting justice and protecting the innocent. And yet in the case of Jesus, they are promoting injustice and they're punishing the innocent. See, he's got no right of recourse. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing else he can appeal to. All of his appeals are done. For, for a, a servant in, in this situation, they, they have nowhere to appeal. There's no place they can go. And Peter is saying in those moments of unjust suffering where there is no place you can go to see justice secured, in those moments where you have no way of recourse, where, where unjust suffering for the time being is going to win, in those moments what you have to do and what I have to do, we have to entrust our injustice, this unjust suffering, we have to entrust that to the courts of God. But we have to entrust our cause to the courts of God. We, we have to have an absolute confidence that, that in the end, all things crooked will be straightened. That, that all wrongs will be righted. That every victim will be vindicated. That every victimizer will be brought to justice. That, that in the end, God will settle all accounts. See, unjust suffering asks you the question, do you believe that? When you have no way of recourse, it's asking you the question. Do you go the way of retaliation where where you take justice into your own hands? Or or do you go the the way of faith and and say, God, I I am entrusting this to your good courts. I'm entrusting that to you. Do, Do you know what unjust suffering really does for us? What it really confronts us with is our own idolatry. You you know what it does? Unjust suffering will demand this of you that you have to let go your want to be God. That you have to let go your want to make sure that justice is levied in every circumstance in the universe, in every situation in the universe, the way you see fit. You have to let go of this idol of control. Of God, I want justice done like this right now. It it forces you to let go of that. And to say, God, I've got... Absolute trust that in the end, all accounts will be settled. That either this unjust suffering, their sin against me, will fall on their own head or on the head of Jesus. But I'm entrusting you to deal with this this cause, with this unjust suffering. I'm trusting you to deal with that more compassionately, more wisely, more justly than than I ever could. That's what it means to endure graciously. That mindful of God, our disposition is we're seeking your good. That we're entrusting our cause to, to God's court, saying, God, in the end, you're going to do a better job of judging this thing and of bringing about justice tonight than I ever could. 
Okay, now Peter gives us some, some reasons for this principle. What, why it is so important that this works itself out into this church family and to Christians in general. Okay, so, so he gives three reasons. First of all, verse 21. It's a calling. Look what he says in verse 21. For to this you have been called. Do, do you see that? He, th- and, uh, just think about the shocking nature of this. Now, if, if you are a Christian in the room, you are called by God to a fruitful and faithful life, following Jesus, loving Jesus. If you're a husband in the room or a wife in the room, you're called to be a good husband, a good wife. If you're, maybe for some of us, we're, we're parents, so you're called to be a, a, a good father and a good mother, right? So, so we've got these callings on our life. And Peter is saying, in addition to those callings, intertwined throughout those callings, is this calling by God on your life to endure graciously unjust suffering. That you are called to do that in the middle of unjust suffering, that God has placed this call on your life to endure graciously. To, to graciously endure this thing. And let me just remind you that this is not divine condemnation to, to endure just, uh, unjust suffering graciously. It, it's not divine condemnation. It's not the wrath of God. It is divine calling that God has placed this on your life. What, why? To, to burn away dross in you, dross in your faith, to perfect your faith, to teach you um, dependence upon God to wean you off of all worldly pleasure so you're satisfied in God alone. It's a calling, a divine calling on your life, he says, but, but there's more. There's also a gospel display at stake. Unjust suffering, enduring it graciously, is a gospel display. Go back to, to verse 12 of chapter 2. Remember what Peter says there? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is an overarching verse for really the rest of the book. He says, keep your conduct honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, So here's what Peter is saying. That there is a sense in which unjust suffering in your life gives you a backdrop for the gospel to pop out of. For the gospel to brightly show itself on. He's saying in verse 12 that listen, your life should be about adorning the gospel. That, that your life should be about showing the gospel. That, that your life should actually make the gospel believable. Believable. Your life should do that. That, that your life should be lived in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation. It, it demands that that, that is not natural. That there's something else going on that would make them or her or whoever respond in that sort of a way. That your life is to demand a gospel explanation. If you were going to ask the question, well, okay, so what does a life look like that demands a gospel explanation? Peter is saying it looks like a life that graciously endures unjust suffering. Nothing natural in that. There's only supernatural in enduring unjust suffering. Maybe you could think of it this way, that if you're a Christian in the room, your darkest moments of unjust suffering offer your brightest moments of gospel display. That that your darkest moments of unjust suffering offer you your brightest moments of gospel display. See, how does the world know that um, Jesus is more satisfying than a good family? until your family falls apart and Jesus is still satisfying to you? How does, how does the world know that Jesus is more satisfying than a good marriage? When your marriage falls apart and Jesus is, is still satisfying to you? How, do you? how does the world know that Jesus is more satisfying than health? When, when health falls apart and Jesus is more satisfying than health? 
See, maybe you could think of it this way. One of the reasons that God ordained suffering for his sons and daughters, unjust suffering, is so the world can watch them endure it and get a glimpse of God in it. You see that? That there's a gospel display at stake. See, what unjust suffering will confront you with is what is your life really about? Is your life about um, a big bank account? Is your life about your health? Is your life about your family? Is your life about um, a hobby? Is your life about, you just fill in the blank. See, what unjust suffering will do is it will expose all of that. Because in unjust suffering, something in there is going to get sabotaged. And when it gets sabotaged, it's going to feel like our life is falling apart because our idols are crumbling all around us. But when we can honestly look at God and say, my life is about the glory of God and the display of the gospel, then here's what happens. Even in the midst of horrendous suffering, we have this kind of untouchable and unshakable joy. That there is something about that person, life about the glory of God and the display of the gospel that is unshakable in the midst of terrible suffering. I love this story of Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor in the Northeast back in the 1800s. Served there for two decades. And his father-in-law was the previous pastor. And he had instituted long ago um, a wrong view of community. That both believers and unbelievers could all come to the table and partake of communion. Jonathan Edwards knew it wasn't biblical. And so he turned the, the church in a biblical direction. And after two decades of faithfully pastoring, they cut him loose. Fired him. Probably the greatest um, theologian in American history. Fired him. And, and this is what one observer said about Jonathan Edwards as he got fired. He said, that faithful witness, referring to Edwards, received the shock unshaken. I never, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And his treasure was not only a future, but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who would not be at rest until uh, without his dismissal. Do you see that? That when your life is about the glory of God, when, when idols fall around you and life is really about the glory of God and the display of the gospel, then there is an unshakableness about us even in the midst of unsuffering or in unjust suffering. There's this happiness that is beyond the reach of unjust suffering. So, so it's this gospel display. It's a way to show the satisfying nature of God. But one more, one more reason is it's commendable to God. It's commended by God. Look at verse 19 and verse 20. You see it twice. It says, for this is a gracious thing. And when it says this is a gracious thing, it means that this is commendable by God. God looks at this and he credits that as something worthy, as something good, as something that would bring a smile to his face. That when he watches his sons or daughter endure unjust suffering graciously, it pleases him. If you want to kind of see this again, look at... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, you see it again, that there is a way in which God bestows special favor and a special blessing on those who graciously endure unjust suffering. There's a way that God looks at that and says, I I'm giving you more. I'm giving, more comes to you as you endure unjust. So, so Peter is saying it's commendable by God, commendable to God. For, the, for those of you who right now are in the midst of terrible unjust suffering, can I just look at you here for a second? Look at me. When you endure it graciously, it's commendable. God, God looks at that and he is pleased with that. It brings a smile to the face of God as he sees his sons and daughters endure that graciously. Okay, we're going to finish here with the motive, the principle's motives. 
So, so the question is, how do you do that? There is nothing in that that is easy. There is nothing in that is natural. Everything we're talking about is supernatural. It takes grace and a lot of the power of God and the work of God to produce these things. So you do not get this. You do not, the how to this, how do you do that, is not found in three steps and then you've got it. Ten steps and then you're sure to be able to endure it graciously. It's not found in a plan. It's found in a person. Look at verse 24. Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. It's not just Jesus as an illustration and an example of suffering. It's Jesus who endured unjust suffering, listen to this, as your substitute that you need. See, this cuts right to the center of suffering and our problem with suffering. See, our problem with suffering is inside of us, not outside of us. Our primary problem is sin, not suffering. See, what sin does is it complicates the suffering. It troubles our troubles. See, our primary problem is inside of us, not the suffering that is outside of us. And what the gospel does, what Jesus on the cross does, is he answers our, and, and resolves our greatest problem. He, he meets our greatest need. Your greatest problem is sin. The greatest problem that you have is not yours, other people's sins against you. It's your sin against God. That's the greatest problem that you have. You hearing that? And until you see that, you'll never be able to, to get past unjust. You'll never be able to graciously endure it. That on the cross, Jesus took care of, resolved your biggest problem, sin, what's inside of you. You see it in verse 24, he bore your sins in his body. That is gospel 101. That is what Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection accomplished for you. A substitute for you in your unjust suffering. But he also solves our problem with the sins of other people. When they commit them against us. See, it's when we sit in and we savor and we can see and it's vivid to us that Jesus died in our place unjustly because of our sin. See, it's, it's when we see that, that what Jesus has done for us, that enables, that energizes us to be able to look at the uh, sins of other people, sins that they've committed against us, and to graciously endure them. See, it's when, it's when we see that Jesus graciously endured sin that we brought against him, that we can begin to graciously endure the sins that other people commit against us. Do you see that? Nothing in that is natural. That requires the grace of the gospel to do that. That's why in verse 24, do you see verse 24? Where it says, you're dead to sin, but you're alive to righteousness. See, it takes that sort of grace, that sort of a gospel. Peter is not just talking about a gospel that, that secures the penalty of our sin, that pays, past tense, the penalty of our sin. He's not just talking about a gospel that gives us a future hope in heaven and an eternity with God. He is talking about a gospel that meets you in your suffering. That, that right now, if you're enduring unjust suffering, that right now, regardless of how big and how wide and how deep that suffering is, that there is a present hope in that suffering. That the gospel makes its way even into that suffering. And that the power of the gospel in that moment allows you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. 
To say no to retaliation and yes to the road of righteousness. To say no, I will not strike back. I will not sink into self-pity. I will choose the way of God here. See, the gospel gives you that sort of of energy, that sort of motivation. It is the only thing that can sustain you long haul for this sort of gracious endurance. Do you see that? It is the only thing that can do that, that Jesus bore your sins on his, uh, on his body, that, that he graciously endured the unjust suffering that you have caused for him, and so now we can graciously endure the, the unjust suffering that others cause for us. Can you hear that this morning? How, how the gospel intersects with that, how the gospel deals with that? That the gospel allows you this supernatural power to fight against the natural impulses of your heart and to say, God, I choose you. When I have no right of recourse, it's yours. It's in your courts. I have complete confidence that in the end, you will settle all accounts more wisely and graciously than I ever could. Uh, in Acts 12, and we're done. In Acts 12, Peter is, uh, he is imprisoned. He's suffering for the sake of Jesus unjustly. He's imprisoned. And uh, it says that the next day Herod was going to bring him out. Translated, that means the next day Herod is going to execute Peter. In a prison, he's waking up in hours, and he will be executed. Okay, can you, can you get there? In hours, he's executed. And do you remember what happens when the angel comes in the middle of the night to bust Peter out of prison? Do you remember, do you remember what he finds? He finds Peter sleeping Fast asleep between two guards. Fast asleep between two guards. In hours, he's executed. And I think if you could track that angel down and say, what were you thinking when you busted into this prison cell and, and you're getting Peter out of this thing and you seem fast asleep? What are you thinking in that? I think the angel would say, um, Peter finally got it. Peter finally got it. Unjust suffering. He's got no right of recourse. And he has held up his cause, and he says, God, it's in your courts, and I am going to sleep soundly. And may God work the gospel of grace into us that deeply. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a little bit of time as we finish up this morning. I mean, for me personally, this just feels so heavy. feels so heavy for me. Because I know that many of you in the room um, have walked through or are walking in the middle of right now, terrible suffering. And, and can I just tell you, first of all, that now I just want to say that I'm sorry for that. That there is a weightiness and a grief and a gravity that those, those moments bring that just feel overwhelming at times. But, but I want you to see, I want you to let Peter pass through you this morning as he gently says, here's your role in that unjust suffering. You're to graciously endure it. Mindful of God, your disposition is, I'm seeking the good of those who seek my harm. Mindful of God, when, when we've got no way of recourse, we, we entrust our cause to the, to the just courts of God. When justice cannot be had now, we have a complete confidence that it's only postponed. 
that, that one day God will straighten everything that's crooked, that he will settle all accounts. Can, can you imagine the sort of gospel display that would be radiated out of, out of this church family if we began to live in this? I mean, what if the next time when, when your name was drug through the mud, you, you, you got off of the crusade to vindicate your name? What if the next time somebody seeks your harm, they sin against you, you, you return good to them? What if the next time you don't retreat into self-pity by the power of God, you go the way of faith? What if the next time you don't, you don't retaliate with, with, with fight, but, but you go the way of faith, graciously enduring? Can you imagine how brightly the gospel would shine? How satisfying Jesus would be shown to people? So um, Jimmy is going to play a song here in a second. I'm going to pray for you. And I, I think that, that this morning could warrant some response from you. That, that maybe, maybe you need to bow where you are. Maybe you need to kneel down on your chair. Maybe you even need to come down up front this morning and just kneel before God and, and say, God, will you help me with this? Okay, God, I need grace for this. This is not natural. It's not easy. There's no impulse in my heart that just wants to go. But, but God, I need grace to, to live in this. Maybe you need to get before God and just with an honest conversation of God, help me. I'm going to be over in the front left. And if, if, if you've got just a need that you would like me to pray over with you, I'd be more than willing to do that. But as Jimmy sings, I'm just going to invite you to respond appropriately. So God, we, we love you. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for how on the cross you bore our sin. You solved our greatest problem, our sin against you. But God, in your grace, you also solved the problem of unjust suffering. Because as we sit and we see that, 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 that you suffered unjustly because of our sin, the sin, the sin we caused you and you endured it graciously, God, God, it enables a heart and a life that, that can graciously endure unjust suffering caused by others. And so, God, I pray that might be a mark of the Stonegate family, that you might lead us graciously in this way, that you'd be merciful in this to us. So, God, God will you do that? Will you massage this deep into the bones of our church? It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.